A church is a group of Christians who assemble as an earthly embassy of Christ's heavenly kingdom to proclaim the good news and commands of Christ the King, to affirm one another as his citizens through the ordinances, and to display God's own holiness and love through a unified and diverse people in all the world following the teaching and example of elders. Well, good morning, church. It's a pleasure to have each and every one of you with us. I hope and pray that you're enjoying uh, the elongated Labor Day weekend. And it is my great privilege to open God's Word with you this morning and to talk about God's work in the world. But before I do so, would you join me in a word of prayer? Let's pray together. Father God, we come before you and we thank you that we can be in your place, singing with your people, reading your scriptures, and pointing our lives and attention to you and you alone. Lord, it is truly good to be in your house today and we are thankful for this incredible opportunity. We thank you for our worship team and leading and and guiding us uh, through worship and reminding us that uh, you are so very good to us. Lord, you are doing so much good in our church and we are thankful for it. I think of our seniors right now who are away on the senior sneak and Lord, pray for them as they're traveling even now to enjoy uh, a day away to be with their leaders, uh, to establish this year as the best year of their lives. I pray, Lord, that you would do a great many good things in the lives of our seniors. I pray that they would serve as models to the rest of our student ministries from middle school to high school, Lord, that you would uh, be ever-present in their lives. Watch over them, protect them, give them a great time, and uh, Lord, use their leaders and your word uh, to transform them and sanctify them in even greater ways. Um, in the days to come. Lord, I also just thank you for uh, this church, and we thank you for what you're doing in and through the people of your church. We pray for the classes that are going on in the other building right now and ask that you would uh, use the leaders and their faithfulness uh, to transform a great many people through your word and by your spirit. I ask that now, Lord, for those that are here, and I ask that you would continue to do the work that you've done this morning, and that is making us... uh, more like yourself and helping us understand uh, the church and the great place that it uh, holds in your heart and it should hold in our hearts as well. We ask for you to teach through me now, Lord, and ask that we would be changed as a result. In Christ's name we pray. Amen and amen. Well, we kick off a series that we've entitled Rediscover Church. In 2020, with the global pandemic uh, striking and, and hitting the world, uh, the question came out, what things are essential? As we sought to understand and know what COVID-19 was all about and, and how bad it was going to be, uh, the governments around the world said, we need to establish what can continue and what needs to stop. And they used this word, essential. What is essential? What is necessary to continue on? And the debate on whether church being essential or not was debated by churches everywhere and by society everywhere. And we began to ask that question. And the problem was, is that discussion had been going on long before COVID-19 broke out. You see, for Americans, that question about church being essential is something that has been going on for a while, and the results are staggering. In fact, over the 50 years, many people would say that church attendance was an important thing amongst Christ followers, hovering around 70%. But in the last 20 years, the question of whether the church is important or not, essential or not, has fallen on some pretty difficult and hard times. We have dropped from what would be an average of about 70% down to 47% of Americans say that this is an important thing. This is an essential thing. To give you an idea, this drop is so significant that in 40 years, if this trend doesn't change, there won't be a church at all. That should sober us. But we should know and recognize that those statistics tell a grander story. You see, we have fallen into this myth that's not only probably here in America, but all over the world because of globalization, that the church isn't necessary. 
that I can be a follower of Jesus Christ. I don't need the church. Give me Jesus and keep the church. In fact, one of the most viral uh, spiritual videos on YouTube is a young man who gives a spoken rap or a spoken word where he talks and lauds about his personal relationship with Jesus Christ and his hatred for religion. Anything corporate, anything institutional, you can keep, just give me Jesus. And we think and we, we, we laud that as notable, as right, as uber spiritual, but it's short-sighted. For many of us, we say, I don't need anything more than my relationship with Jesus. Well, let me tell you something. What you're going to hear in the next nine weeks is that the church is essential. And that the church is necessary. And it would be as if saying, Tim, I want to hang out with you. I want to be involved with you. I want to spend time with you. I want to go about living life with you. But here is my one condition. Keep Amanda away from me. You would say, I can't do that. She's my bride. She's my wife. Well, some of us are saying that to Jesus' bride. Jesus, I want you. Jesus, I'll spend time with you. Jesus, I'll interact with you. But just keep your church out of it. Keep your bride away from me. And we have personalized our faith to a level that the Bible is altogether uncomfortable with. And in part, we've said, do I need to go to church? Do I need to participate in church? Do I need to have church as an active part of my life? And the popular cultural notion is, no, you don't need it. It is altogether unessential. And yet this book will tell us over and over again, we're wrong. We are absolutely, positively wrong. And so the campus pastors believe now is a better time than ever for us to rediscover church. To understand the place that the church has in God's eyes and in his heart. And stop thinking that the church is a place that we can take or leave and understand this is the very thing that Jesus died for. This is the very thing that Jesus is sanctifying today. This is the very thing that we will spend time for all eternity together a part of. We need to rediscover church. And one of the reasons why we need to rediscover church is what one author says. He says that the Christian without a church is a Christian in trouble. Leave that up there for a moment. Do you believe that? During COVID, we said, no, all we need is a TV. All we need is a camera. All we need is broadband internet. And we've got the church. It's right in my living room. And we need to recognize the church is more than a program. And so many of us will say, well, I'm just doing church at home. No, you're not. You're watching Netflix just of a religious variety. And you better have a good reason as to why you are there and not here. Can, can it be a valid place for some? Absolutely. We've got a lot of people watching right now and they're watching online because they can't be here for a variety of valid reasons. But COVID-19 said you can do it in your living room. And here's why. Because we define a church as a place. We define church as a program. And we rarely define it as the people that Jesus said he died for. And so we need to rediscover it. Now, does that mean that without the church you can't be a Christian? Notice, he doesn't say that. It says without a, a Christian without a church is still a Christian. You're just in a troubled spot. You're not the best that you can be. You are not all that God intended for you to be. That's why I like what Dr. Tony Evans says when he said this uh, recently on Twitter. He said, I hear people say, I don't have to go to church to be a Christian. Maybe you've said that. And you're absolutely right. You don't have to be uh, a, a churchgoer to be a Christian. He says, salvation is through faith alone in Christ alone. But I love what he says. But you don't have to go to home. You don't have to go home to be married. 
But stay away long enough and your relationship will be affected. How has your lack of relationship with the church affected your relationship with Jesus Christ? That's what we want to dig into this series. And at times it will be altogether uncomfortable for us. Because I think, deep down inside, even within a place like Village Bible Church, and, and here's the thing, Village Bible Church isn't seeing this on a graph, it's seeing this. And that still doesn't mean that we've got this thing, church, figured all out. So we need to know it, we need to rediscover it, we need to understand it, because once we understand it for what God wants it to be, of what God says it is, then we will relate to it in a completely different way. So to do so, I'm gonna preach a very, very different kind of sermon today. And I need you to grab your pens, I need you to grab your outlines, and follow along, because we're going to go on a journey. And we're gonna ask this a most fundamental question. What is the church? Have you ever asked that of yourself? What is this church that I'm a part of? When I was a little kid, I was told to put my hands together and say, this is the church, this is the steeple. You open the door, there's all the people. Let's close in prayer. Right? That's all I need to know. But if you define the church as a building, as a place, well, this is a pretty sad place. And you maybe have invited family and friends from other church traditions who leverage the church more as a place than anything else. And they're like, where's the architecture? Why are you bringing coffee into this place? This is a sacred place. Why do you hold things like trivia night in here? This is a sanctuary, a place for worship. Because in our tradition, The church isn't just a place. That doesn't mean this place should be a free-for-all, but it's not just a place. It's not just programs. We don't just come here for the program. That's why I I do hold in some sort of tension us simply doing church online. It's not just something you can tune into. You can't just go and, and it's not a cafeteria where you can say, well, I go to church for what? For the programs, for the singing, for the preaching, and then I leave. It's a place that has programs, yes, but it's a people of which Jesus said, I died for. To understand that, we've got to understand the church and answer the question, what is the church in four ways? Number one, grammatically. Grammatically. The first mention of the word church is in Matthew 16. I'm going to give you lots of scripture, and I'm going to ask you to write them down, and I want you to look at them. I want you to know where these passages of scripture are from. Matthew 16 is the first mention of the church in the New Testament. Jesus says this, who do people say that I am? The disciples say, some say John the Baptist, others say um, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And Jesus turns and he says, well, who do you say that I am? And after a little bit of silence, Peter speaks up on behalf of the disciples and he says, you are the Christ, you are the son of the living God. This is the right answer. Ding, 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 ding. What do we got for him, Bob? Jesus turns and says, Peter, you are Peter. And upon this rock, I'm going to build my church. Now, what in the world was Jesus talking about? First time he ever mentions this, first time it's ever written in the scriptures, what does he mean? Well, the word he uses is a very generic word, ecclesia. Ecclesia is an assembly of people gathered together. So when the disciples hear this, I'm going to build an assembly of people who are gathered together. You know what Jesus is talking about? Sometimes I have no idea. He's bringing a group together. The word ecclesia was a generic word that was used for any gathering of people that were gathered for a purpose. We see ecclesias at Wrigley Fields, at Guaranteed Rate Park. We see them at the United Center. We see ecclesias... Um, at the movie theater. We see it at the concert venue. A gathered people who are gathered together. Now it's not just any mass of people, but we see an ecclesia even when we go to the Aldi or Jewel. We see an ecclesia when we go to our local restaurants. 
Well, why if a group of people is in an ecclesia, but all those places are? And here's the reason why. If you can merge or connect those people to a single purpose, you've got an ecclesia. So the people that are guaranteed rates in Wrigley Field, they are a ecclesia of, for baseball. When you go to the movies, they're an ecclesia for a movie. When they're at a restaurant, it's an ecclesia of a food variety. The church is a group of people who are gathered for the intended purpose of worshiping Jesus. We're going to get to a greater definition in a moment, but that's a useful one. Jesus says, I'm going to build a gathered people who live for me, who worship me, who love me, who live like me. Now, there's two types of ecclesias in the church. There is the invisible ecclesia. That is the church that only God sees. You and I can't see this. Uh, this is the church that will reside for all eternity in heaven. In this church, everybody's saved. In this church, Jesus is the only pastor. In this church, there are no denominations. In this church, there is one membership role. The book of Revelation says, and if anyone's name is not written in the Lamb's book of life, they'll be cast into the lake of fire. This church involves living and dead. The apostle Paul and Peter, James and John are a part of this church. And every faithful individual all throughout time is a part of this church. And you and I today, if we are true followers of Jesus Christ, are a part of this church. This is the church that God sees. But there's another church. That is the visible church, the visible ecclesia. And we're representing that right now. This is the church that we see. We are a small depiction of the visible church. Now the problem with the visible church is that it's a little uglier than the invisible church. It's got problems. It's got warts. It's got all kinds of issues. This is the kind of church that you see on Facebook. People say, I don't want nothing to do with the church. It's a full of hypocrites. There's probably some truth to that because it's filled with sinners. And this church is the church that we see. And here's the thing. Membership in this church doesn't guarantee you're a believer. Why? Because you can lie. And we won't know. I am here to tell you right now, of the 350 some members that we have in Village Bible Church, not including attenders, but just the members who have signed on the line and said, I'm a follower of Jesus, I'm going to tell you right now, with almost 100% assurity, I bet you not all of them are going to heaven. And that might cause you a bit of consternation. But here's what I know. The heart is deceitfully sick. And there's a whole lot of reasons why people join a church and it's not always for the right ones. So don't say, the reason why I'm going to church or the reason why I'm going to heaven is because I'm a member of Village Bible Church. That means nothing. Don't take that to Jesus. Don't tell him that Pastor Tim told you that. I don't want to get in trouble with Jesus. So not all members are saved of visible church. And that's what creates some of the scandal. That's what creates some of the problems. There's a lot of different churches a part of it. There's differing denominations. We're only part of the body of Christ. We're not the totality of it. You don't have to be a part of Village Bible Church to be with Jesus. You need to be a part of a church. Knowing the difference is altogether important. Now the Bible speaks of both. In Matthew 16... The Bible says, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. If we take the visible church, visible ecclesia, as that being the church that Jesus is talking about, every time a church closes for any reason, we make Jesus a liar. Because the devil has prevailed against it. The church was up and going, and now it's closed. It, it lost. What Jesus is saying is, I'm building this church, and this church, these people that I've saved, who I will sanctify and one day glorify, the gates of hell will never advance on that. It's already victorious. Why? Because I, I have won the battle through my sacrifice on the cross. Now, the Bible uses many metaphors for the church, and these are incredibly helpful that we need to know them and recognize them. And we've got to ask the question, which we will do in our time of communion here in a little while, about our relationship with it. So the church is called the bride of Christ. 
We see that in Ephesians 5, 25 through 27. What does that mean? That means that Jesus has a significant and intimate relationship with this thing that we're talking about. This entity, this organization, this group of people. He calls it his bride. That's special. What he's doing for her. How he's caring for her. For those of us who are married, this is the most significant of relationships that we have. And Jesus is saying, my most significant relationship that I have in the cosmos is with the church. He calls us the flock of God. And this speaks about his oversight of us, his care for us. This speaks of of who we are. We are sheep. And without a shepherd, we are lost and harassed and, and helpless. He speaks of this in 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 2 and 3. He talks about us being the body of Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 27. This speaks of our interconnectivity to the church. See, a lot of us have this notion, I'm fine without the church. I don't need to be a part of the church. I can show up every once in a while and just keep a peripheral connection to the church. That's like the thumb saying, I'm fine by myself. Well, what good's a thumb without a nervous system? What good is the thumb without a brain directing it? What good is a thumb without a hand? What good is a thumb without an arm? What good is a thumb without the rest of the body? It's of no value. But when it is connected, it has great value. It's the family of God. This speaks of the commitment that God has to us. The forgiveness and love that that he extends to us. Parents, you know this better than anybody does. The love we have for our children, the forbearance we have for our children, the things that we'll do for our children. And Jesus says, this is who you are. You're a part of this church. He calls us the house of God in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15. And this speaks again of the difference of who we are like the body. There are different rooms in the house for different uses. And just like that, we're being built together, rooms of a house being built up into one house. But really what this is talking about is the process. Jesus is building this house, one brick upon another. And when this house is built, he will usher in eternity for us to enjoy what he's created, the church. Do you see how we have dumbed this thing down? To a place and a moment that we attend on, on any random Sunday when nothing else is going on, when I have no other better options, that I position my church. I was asked this week, what's going to happen to church attendance when bear season start next week? Are you kidding me? That's how we determine our church involvement? We've missed the boat. This is what Christ died for. Well, the kids have this, or I've got that, or it's a long weekend. Does that mean we got to be here every Sunday? No, there's things going on. I get it. But is our priority something more than just a place that if nothing else is going on, well, well, I guess let's go to church. We have dumbed this thing down, and we wonder why. We're not having the impact in the world. And the reason why is we're not connected to the very lifeblood of what God's kingdom is all about. The church. You were never intended or created to do the Christian life disconnected from the church. The devil loves that. If I can get you alone, I'll eat you up before lunch. Put you in a strong, healthy, vibrant church. Now I've got a battle. Now I've got a problem. So what is the church? We'll be dealing with this based on all of this great uh, definition. A church is a group of Christians who assemble 
as an earthly embassy, we're going to deal with these in the days to come, an earthly embassy of Christ's heavenly kingdom to proclaim the good news and commands of Christ the King, to affirm on one another his citizens through the ordinances of Lord's Supper and baptism, and to display God's own holiness and love through a unified and diverse people in all the world following the teaching and example of elders. And you're like, wow, that's a mouthful, because it is. Church is more than what we've made it. Now, how did we get here? Because we know how it started, Acts chapter 2, day of Pentecost, the church grows and, and is started by the Holy Spirit. And then we fast forward to 2023 and we're here in Sugar Grove at Village Bible Church. How did we get here? Now that we understand it grammatically, now we have to look at it historically. Historically. And we need to understand that we didn't just show up here. How did we get here? What's our family tree? How did this church, how has this church functioned after Jesus Christ ascended to heaven? It can be broke up into four divisions. I'm going to do this quickly. 2,000 years in the next about eight minutes. So follow along, write this down. The first time or era we have in the church is what we call the post-apostolic time. That really is from 33 AD to 6th century. And what we have in that time, and we'll move quickly, and I'm going to paint it with a broad brush, we have the death of the last disciple, John. He dies around 90 AD, about 60 to 70 years after the ascension of Jesus. What happens after that? Who takes over the reign? Because now we no longer have... A person who is an eyewitness of Jesus, as John said, we saw him, we touched him, we heard from him, and we've taken what we've heard from him and we tell you. That's what he says in the beginning of 1 John. Well, what happens when there's nobody who's heard audibly from Jesus, who has seen Jesus, who is a part of Jesus' inner circle, who takes over? We call these people the early church fathers. And these individuals that took over the church were the disciples of the disciples. Most notably, the one that I will share about is a guy by the name of Ignatius. We named schools after him. There's churches named after him. He is about as close to Jesus as anybody who wasn't a part of the disciples. And what I mean by that is he was a disciple of the disciple John. And John gives him, per Ignatius's words... The job of going and making sure there are pastors in all of these churches. Make sure that each church has a pastor and they know all that we've taught you and told you and make sure the people keep doing those things. And so he does. And he puts these guys in. We call them bishops. Guys like uh, Tertullian, Polycarp, Justin Martyr. All of these individuals. Now you want to learn more about these guys. Many of these people's lives are written in the book, Fox's Book of Martyrs. And they tell the story that these men and women, like their mentors, the disciples, would preach the gospel to the point of death. One of the greatest stories of all time is the story of Polycarp. Man, read that story. Impressive. Impressive. That is an old ancient man in the Colosseum is going to be fed to the lions. And he professes Christ. Pretty amazing stuff. Now, during this time, there's no uh, published Bibles. Uh, there's no ability to write on paper okay here's how you, here's your church constitution here's what you do so what they did was is they came up with verbal or oral traditions and creeds uh, the first one being the didache that's d-i-d-a-c-h-e the didache was written at the end of the first century probably around 125 a.d and it's a church manual you can read it today Go to the internet, type that in, you'll read it, and it'll say, this is what the people of the church do. Gather on Sundays, take an offering, preach the word, sing songs, recite scripture, baptize people, celebrate communion, fellowship together, give announcements so the people of God know what's going on. Listen, you wonder why church is boring? Because it does the same thing for the last 2,000 years. We're doing the same thing. 
But people would say, what, are, what do you believe? You're a Christian, what do you believe? You didn't say, well, go to the website. There was no website. And so confessions were given or creeds were given. And so they would say, say this, I believe in God the Father, almighty maker of heaven and earth, and Jesus Christ, his only son, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, the Apostles' Creed. That happens around 200 years after Jesus' ascension. And it becomes the standard bearer of what we believe a Christian to believe. So when you say, I'm a Christian, I'm a believer of these things. Then around 300 A.D., something amazing happens. The emperor over the Roman Empire, Constantine, has a dream that Jesus appears to him. Now remember, prior to this, to be a follower of Jesus is to be outlawed. We're putting you to the lions in the Colosseum. You're being persecuted. But the king, the emperor, has a dream and he converts to Christianity. So the Christians go from being the outcast to being the state church. This is the beginning of, of all of the cathedrals and all of the basilicas and all of this. The church, its architecture, all of that becomes it because the king becomes enamored with Jesus. And the king says, all right, I want to know fully what this Christianity is all about. So he calls for a meeting of pastors. They meet in a city called Nicaea. And in 324, the job of all the pastors is to get together and to come to some unified belief about what Christianity is. And so they do. And the first thing they do is they determine what books are in the Bible. Some of you thought this thing just fell from heaven. And in 324, they say, okay, which, which books of the Bible? Now, the 39 of the Old Testament was already codified as the Jewish scripture, so there was no question about that, but the New Testament... And so they start asking questions. Well, which ones did Peter and James talk about? What about John? What did the disciples say were the scriptures? And they started going through and there was debate and they agreed upon the 27 books of the New Testament. They also agreed on who Jesus was. That he was 100% God and 100% man. They also, for the first time, articulated what we know to be the Trinity. Now it's baked in the scriptures... But they articulated it and said that it was a non-negotiable. Now for a lot of us, we're like, I had no idea. And in many ways, these guys aren't disciples. These guys aren't uh, uh, fully authoritative. But they're kind of like our framers of our constitution and our democracy. Man, man, we're indebted to them. They weren't perfect by any stretch of the imagination. They said sometimes some really dumb stuff. But man, we would be lost as a church without him. And so we need to understand this. Now, now we get to the second one, and I'm already eight minutes in, so I gotta move faster here, so we'll be done by four o'clock. And that is the Roman Catholics from sixth century on. Now, Roman Catholics right away, if, if someone's here who's a Roman Catholic or someone's watching online, oh, wait a minute, Badal, wait a minute. We go back to Peter. Matthew chapter 16, Jesus says, and you are Peter, and upon Peter, the rock, I'm going to build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And so what they say is, Jesus built his church, not on Peter's confession, but on Peter the person. And because of that, Peter becomes the first of the popes. So Peter now becomes the leader of the church, and he becomes what will become the papacy. And so Roman Catholics will have for you, from Pope Francis today, Pope Francis, Pope Benedict, Pope John II, and they will go all the way back to the first century to Peter, and they'll say, here are all our popes. We are the church. The problem with that is church history doesn't give that picture at all. In fact, church history says that while there was a leader of the church, it was nothing like we see in the papacy today. And that's because a guy by the name of Pope Gregory the Great in the 6th century comes to power. And he begins a bunch of things that we know of as modern day Catholicism, the beginning of the Mass. So the Mass is significant. People say, well, I go to church, well, I go to Mass. It's the same thing. No, it's not. 
The Mass is the re-sacrificing of Jesus on the cross through the communion elements. So if you've been to a Catholic church, you will see incense, you'll hear bells being rung. At the point that the bells are rung, a miracle is taking place at the hands of the priest. He is changing the wafer and the wine into the actual body and blood of Jesus, which is necessary for you to have salvation. Some of you are like, I had no idea. I just thought they wore awesome costumes. So that begins. Then we have in Roman Catholicism, uh, salvation by works. That it's not by faith, it's not by grace. It is that you work and you do certain things and certain sacraments that the church offers to you and you can be saved. Then there's the elevation of the papacy. The papacy went from being a, a pastor to now being the mediator between God and man. To being one who is... Um, ex-cathedra, which is Latin, from the seed, who is infallible. We have extra-biblical doctrines of Mary taking place at the time. We have now the celibacy of priests added around the 6th and 7th century. This stuff wasn't around in biblical times. We're like, so you look and you're like, man, where did this all begin? It started to merge when the church and the state get together. So the church and state get together and say, we need to have all the same outfits. We need to do the church all the same way. And we have the Roman Catholic Church there. Now, all of that takes place, and you know what happens? It causes a church split. In 1054, we have the Orthodox Church. And in 1054, we have the Great Schism. Some in the church say, wait a minute, this is not the church that I read about in the book of Acts. We've got a split. And I love titles. Catholic Universal. We're the Universal Church. Orthodox, we are the true church. So you have the universal church against the true church. They split, and they split for a couple reasons. It's West versus East. It's Europe versus Asia. And a couple reasons why they split in 1054 is about where the capital city of the church is going to be. The East wanted Constantinople, Turkey. The West wanted Rome. The belief of <clears throat> images and statues in the church, the Orthodox church, so that they should be aids of worship. So if you go into an Orthodox church, a kid with ADD loves that. There's just pictures everywhere. And they're aids to worship. The Catholic church says, no, that's not what the statues and the, and the pictures are for. They are there, but they're not to be used for worship. Uh, there's also the, the procession of the Trinity is involved in that. The celibacy of the, of the clergy is involved in that. And so they break up. It's during this time in 1054 that we have what is the Dark Ages. And the reason why it's dark is the church is a pretty corrupt place. The church does corrupt things. In the midst of this is the Crusades, where in God's name we just massacre lots of people and they have reasons for it. But it's just a dark time. This is not the best time of the church. And the church continues to grow. It gets richer, it gets more powerful, and it gets more lax in its beliefs. To about the 15th, 16th century. And there's this guy in Germany, a Catholic named Martin Luther, and he is pastoring his own local church. He's preaching to his people. He's full-fledged Catholic. But he sees a lot of things in the church that he's altogether unhappy about. He makes a pilgrimage to Rome and he sees priests with prostitutes. And he sees money all over the place. And he says, man, this is, this is not the church that I thought it was. But he says, I'm faithful, it's, I'm not going to be orthodox, it's the only church in town, this is what I'm going to do. And so he continues preaching and reading his Bible and preaching away, and then a guy comes to his town. A guy that's been assigned to go through all of Europe on behalf of the Pope. The Pope sends this guy, his name is Johann Tetzel. And Johann Tetzel comes from Rome to Germany and begins to tell people about a project that's happening in Rome. It is the building of St. Peter's Basilica, the church that is in the midst of the Vatican. Some of you no doubt have traveled there and seen it. This is where the Pope resides. This is where Vatican City is. They're building it. Talk about the ultimate all-in for tomorrow. 
And they need all the church, all hands on deck. We need to raise money. And Tetzel's job is to go city to city and raise funds. And that's exactly what he does. And he comes up with a masterful plan to do so with the permission of the Pope. And that is, Tetzel is told that if you give, this is from the Pope, if you give money to the building of St. Peter's Basilica, the Pope will shorten the stay of your dead relative's stay in purgatory sounds like a deal where do i sign up tetzel puts on a play in every city where he goes and 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 people on both sides of it say the play was incredible and here why it was incredible it scared the daylights out of people in fact it was said of both secular catholic and protestant historians that people literally would find themselves vomiting by watching what transpired And the reason was is they would show this group of people who lived and then died and went to purgatory. And that their souls were on fire. They were experiencing just intolerable pain and suffering. One of the ways that he would make it realistic is he had individuals who would literally burn their own flesh to give the smell of rotting, burning flesh. That's what caused the vomiting, by the way. And at the end of this incredible play... Tetzel would bring out a coffin that served as an offering basket. It's masterful. And he says, listen, if you give to this, your family members, mom and dad, that's what they're experiencing right now, they can be freed from it. And he would sing a song as the coffin would go, as the coin in the coffin rings, the soul from purgatory springs. How much money do you think they raised? Tons. Well, Pastor Luther sees this and he says, this is not in the Bible. What in the world's going on? And so he takes 95 concerns that he has, he nails it to the door of Wittenberg Church and one of the arguments is this, it's masterful. Martin Luther, brilliant, brilliant guy. A little brash at times, kind of like your pastor, but way more brilliant than your pastors. He says this to the Pope. Nobody's ever talked back to the Pope. And he says to the Pope, Pope, if you really have this power to shorten or alleviate people's time in purgatory, he says, I got two questions for you. Number one, why not give it to everybody? And number two, why do you charge for it? beautiful drop the mic i'm a protestant already and with that the catholic church unloads all kinds of pain and sorrow onto martin luther seeking to kill him to judge him they call him a heretic and a war breaks out a war that would last for 30 years first of all and then another 100 years after that because all of europe is turned upside down And the work of the Reformation would go on for 300 years. It would make its way into colonial America. In fact, America would be founded, listen to me, as a Protestant country. The pilgrims came to get away from the state church. So they could have their own little place, their own little group where they could be. That's what Plymouth Rock was all about. And so where in all of this do we get to Village Bible Church, to the present? Well, we're not Lutheran, so we have a problem with Luther. We like a lot of what Luther says. We're not Presbyterian. We we don't agree with everything John Calvin came up with. We're not Methodist. We don't agree with everything John Wesley came up with. So who's our guy? You'll love our guy. His name's Ulrich Zwingli. You don't even know that guy. And he's your guy. You can't even spell his name. Where do you go? I go to Village Zwingli Church. Really? What's the logo look like for that? Zwingli said, I agree with you, Luther, on everything you say, but here's my problem. I got two problems with you. Number one, unlike you, I don't see anywhere where an infant is baptized. So I got a problem with baptism. The only thing I see is people believe and are baptized, believe and baptized, believe and baptized. The second thing is, is Luther, you're way too close with the Catholics on communion. I believe that communion is a memorial, not the actual body and blood, but a memorial. It's a symbol. 
Just as Jesus said he's the vine and branches doesn't mean he's a vine. Just because he says he's a door doesn't mean he's a door. Just because he says he's a shepherd doesn't mean he's an actual shepherd. So when he says, this is my body, he's speaking symbolically. There's real differences to where we're at. Of which Luther says to Zwingli, you're a heretic, get out of my sight. And Zwingli starts what is called the Anabaptist movement. It's the first mention of Baptist, and here's the reason why. We baptize differently. We baptize differently. So maybe you're new to this church, you're like, why aren't you baptizing the babies? Because the Bible, we want to focus in on what the Bible says, and the Bible seems to say that believers are baptized, not babies. Now, there's a whole lot more there. I don't have time right now. We'll talk about this when we talk about the ordinances, but that's a, it's a big deal. These things are important. You're like, I'm here because I like the music. I'm here because I like the carpeting. I'm here because I like the preacher. But we're way, there's a whole lot of reasons why we are who we are today. So our closest affiliations were Baptists. We're Baptists. And here's why. You look at this acronym. I've got to move quicker because Monica is going to revolt here in about two minutes. Amen. Amen. Thank you. <laughs> I figured you were in here, so I'm on borrowed time. So Baptists, we believe in biblical authority. We don't have a pope. Who's our pope? The word of God. Okay? We believe in the autonomy of the local church. We are not a part of a magisterium. We are our own authority. There's good and bad that come with that. Okay? But we, are, we, we own our own destiny. As long as we follow the scriptures and do what God says, we have freedom. This is the priesthood of every believer. There's not clergy and laity. There are certain things in the Roman Catholic Church that only the priest can do. Listen, I can't do anything you can't do. There's nothing special about me. That's different than us in Roman Catholicism. We believe in two ordinances, not a bunch of sacraments. We believe in baptism and the Lord's Supper. Roman Catholicism believes in a lot of other different things. We believe in individual soul liberty, meaning the Holy Spirit's in you. You don't need me to tell you what to do. You don't need me to absolve you of your sins. You have freedom to do that, for there is one mediator between God and man, the person Jesus Christ. We believe in a saved, baptized church membership. We have two offices. Elder and deacon. We don't have monsignor, cardinals, bishops, priests, fathers, unit. We don't. Elders and deacons. Why? That's what the Bible says. And we believe in the separation of church and state. And you're like, no, we don't. We do. We do not want a Catholic government. We don't want a Lutheran government. We don't want a Baptist government. We don't want any church to govern us. What we want is a church that is separate from the government but a government that allows all churches to do as they believe is right. We want separation there. Thus, B-A-P-T-I-S-T-S. We're Baptist in name only. Okay? Because we're not associated. Our name doesn't have that. So how are we organizationally to function? Write these down. We're going to talk about these in the days to come. We are here for these reasons. We follow the same Lord. We pursue the same way of life. We submit to the same qualified leaders. And we partner together as laborers. And here's why. Because the Bible tells us that's how we are to function. So that leads us to our final point, and that's biblically. Why do we do it this way? Because the Bible tells us so. So the Bible tells us three things biblically about the church. Number one, it involves a special person. Jesus says this in Matthew 16. I will build, help me out. Give me that little word there before church. Not yours. Not mine. His church. Folks, understand this. This is not about you. So you judge a church. Did they sing the songs I wanted? Did they talk about the things that I wanted? Did they engage the things that I wanted? Did the place look like I wanted it to do? Did it serve the coffee I wanted it to serve? Did they park me where I wanted to park? Listen to me. The church isn't about you. It's not about me. It is altogether about Jesus, beginning, end, and middle of the story. 
It's all about him. Make it about him. Always make it about him. I am here, Jesus, because of you. And if that guy up front doesn't preach about you, I'm out. If they stop singing about you, I'm out. But we determine where we're going to go to church based on times, based on preferences. It's all about Jesus. This is his church. It's his secret plan to change the world. All throughout the Old Testament, he was gearing us up for the beginning of the church. In Ephesians 3.10, it says that the manifold wisdom of God is being made known to all creation, angels, demons, and human beings. How? How does the cosmos know about Jesus? The answer is the church. You cannot have a relationship with Jesus without the church. Why? Because the church is who made the world know that Jesus is needed. You cannot separate that. The church is the way God is revealing himself. God uses uh, creation to do it, and now he uses it through the church. And so that means our specific purpose is to make much of Jesus. How will the world know? By the church being the church. By the church doing what the church needs to do. And that means we lock arms together with people and we say, will you join me in this journey of following Jesus? And as we do that, Jesus says, it is the last great hope of the world. We're it. There's no plan B. Jesus has given the job of the church to change lives. So, as the worship team comes up and as we close our time surrounding ourselves around the table, what in the world would we think about in communion? The answer is, what is my relationship with this church? And what I mean by this church, I'm not meaning Village Bible Church per se, but this church that we've now heard about, that Jesus died for, What's my relationship with the family of God? What's my relationship with the body of Christ? What's my relationship with the household of God? What's my relationship with the bride of Christ? What is my relationship with the flock of God that Jesus laid his life down for? Is it just a place I go? Is it a place I date? Or is it a relationship that I have that I love this church and I love the people that fulfill the church to the same extent that Jesus does? That should be our passion. And so with the time we have left and the couple moments we have of quiet meditation, let me ask you, do you love this church to the extent that Jesus does? Are you even close to that? If not, what's keeping you from it? Take some time and ask for forgiveness that we've made the church what it was never intended to be.